Let me start with a confession that might be misunderstood, and so I ask that you hang in there through the whole sermon so that it might make more sense to you. And I am aware that this confession will be heard as being a provocative one. So may God give us ears to hear. The confession is that I'm a racist. Not all of me is, part of me is, the, the dark part of me, the base part of me is, and not all the time, just sometimes. And if we were honest with ourselves, I would contend that we all are, which is why we need a higher standard, a word that calls us to a new order and a new way and a new creation. Moses, when sharing with the people in Israel of Israel when they were in the wilderness, went to the mountaintop and got the Ten Commandments and brought those down to help govern the people around a higher social, moral, ethical, human order called the Ten Commandments. And we know the story that when he came down from the mountain, they were all worshiping the golden calf, and so he flung the the uh, tablets down and they shattered into a gazillion pieces. But later, God chose to give the people a mulligan. And Moses went back up to the mountain. Actually, it was Moses who convinced God to do that. Moses went back up to the mountain, received the commandments again written on two tablets. And this time when he came down, it's written about in Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy, meaning two laws, the second law, Deuteronomy, when he came down, he gathered the people together and had a word to tell them about how we're called to live as human beings in a world when we're not all alike. It comes from Deuteronomy 10, verses 12 through 19, and may God open us up to this word, Moses speaking, so now, O Israel, What does the Lord, your God, require of you? Only to fear the Lord, your God, that is to revere God, to walk in his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord, your God, with all your heart and with all your soul, and to keep the commandments of the Lord, your God, and his decrees that I am commanding you today. For your own well-being. Although heaven and the heaven of heavens belong to the Lord your God, the earth with all that is in it, yet the Lord set his heart in love on your ancestors alone and chose you, their descendants after them, out of all the peoples as it is today. Circumcise, then, the foreskin of your heart, and do not be stubborn any longer. For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great God, mighty and awesome, who is not partial and takes no bribe, who executes justice for the orphan and the widow and who loves the strangers, providing them food and clothing. 
You shall also love the stranger, for you were strangers too in the land of Egypt. This is the word of the Lord. Sometimes life just throws you a curveball. Several weeks ago when I decided to preach about the issue of diversity and pluralism and racism and immigration and all that is on our plate these days, I had no idea that this week would open up with Tuesday being a time for Starbucks to close their every single Starbucks coffee shop for three hours starting at two to have diversity and racism training classes. I had no idea that Roseanne Barr would tweet an egregiously racial comment across the airwaves. By the way, about tweeting, maybe we should use the same advice that we were given by our mothers when we come to an intersection, stop, look twice both ways to make sure something is not about to come your way and run you over, which would of course be an unedited, impulsive tweet. I had no idea that Samantha Bee would stand up as a comedian and say the vulgar things that she did about Ivana Trump, demeaning a very beautiful part of the human anatomy. I had no idea that the immigration debate would continue as it does. Actually, I did have an idea of that, but I did not know about the 150 lost children, that seems to be an issue. And I didn't know the recent news that the white nationalist movement continues to gain gain strength, and I had not yet received a bumper sticker on the back of a car that read, All Lives Splatter, with a pickup truck running over people On the side of it was the number 45, the 45th president. What's this about? What am I talking about? It's not politics. This is not about being politically correct. I'm talking about sin. I'm talking about the darkness that has been unleashed in our world in a new way and is becoming more and more normalized. What used to be taboo is no longer. What used to be a civilization that would hold us accountable, hold us in check with social mores and expectations seems to be going up in dust. Now we have no care about responsibility. It's all about rights. So anyway, we look at this from a biblical perspective, racism and xenophobia and fear of the stranger is a sin. And there are over a hundred verses in the Bible in the Old and New Testament that support it and calls for us to welcome the stranger in our midst, as it says in Hebrews for we may be welcoming angels unawares. 
So let us at least own up to this much. Our racism and xenophobia is a sin. I know the rationale for it. I've read the evolutionary biologist story about how this was all part of our learning how to survive on the plains of Africa 50,000 years ago, that we needed a blink response, an impulsive blink response to be able to determine if that hominoid walking toward us is a friend or a foe, because if we didn't instantaneously figure it out, we could be toast. I understand it from an evolutional perspective. But that's the point, you see. That's the, that's the point, that that was a 50,000-year-old part of us, the base part of us. And if we have evolved any since then, hopefully it is in moving away from that impulsivity of fear toward the stranger. So for our benefit, as the text said, for our benefit, the passage here I read has God calling us to live up to a new and different standard than that fear response. Moses came down from the mountaintop the second time And the issue was, would the people of Israel be the called chosen people that God had picked? Would they live up to this standard to be a light to the nations, a blessing for all peoples? Would they serve as a model? And they hadn't done too good up to that point, to be honest. But God was calling them into partnership so that they could be for all peoples a symbol of what it looks like to live together, even though they had 12 tribes, even though they went into the land of Canaan, to live together with some sense of hospitality and welcoming for the other. Again, they were easy to fight and easy to claim fear for justification and easy to stamp God on their wars and then print it in the Bible as if it was God's intent. They were easy to do that. And it was hard for them to own up to this higher standard of learning how to live into this welcoming embrace of strangers. But that was their challenge. And then Jesus shows up who was the stranger of all strangers, completely estranged from his family, from the culture, from the synagogue, from Judaism. He was the stranger of strangers. He shows up and is equally, if not more clear at every instance, what does he do but welcome that one who is outcast the leper, the blind, the sexually impure, the adulterous, 
at every point and place, Jesus is putting his hand on those strangers who are seen as being threats to the status quo, which is exactly why I think he was crucified. Because what he was saying is, we are all part of the kingdom of God, and that there is, as Paul said, no longer Jew or Gentile, or slave or free, or male or female, that we are all one in Christ Jesus. And if we're all one in the eyes of God, then that must mean that we're not any better than anybody else. Like the old southern farmer who had one mule, and his mule died, but his neighbor, who happened to be a black man, for some reason was more prosperous and had two mules. So the old southern farmer went down and shot both the mules of the black man, and when he was arrested and asked why he did it, he said, because if I ain't any better than that, N-word, I ain't good for nothing. But Jesus is saying that we're all, you see, eyes, ears, mouths, bodies of God's image, that we're all in our differentness part of this larger tapestry of God. And that in that way, not only are we given our true sense of self and who we are, it's a God identity, not a political, not a gender identity, not a, it's a God identity. We are all children in that, but we also need each other in our diversity to be more fully ourselves. Now, this is the Christian response. And I know that we Christians also live in a nation state where we have to juggle our own faith and Christianity with the laws and rules about immigration and who strangers are and who is allowed and not allowed into our country. I understand that there's a rule of law that we have to live by, but I also want us to claim the fact, at least, that it calls us into conflict with a greater law, which is the rule of love. At least we can own up to that as Christians. At least we can claim our conflictedness. And if so, it might lead to humility, to a little less self-righteousness, no matter which side, no matter which ideological side that we choose. It might lead us to be more open to listen to others. Circumcise the foreskins of your heart, God says. Cut away the hard, calloused part of us on the inside where we think things are simple and black and white or good or bad and open yourself up to a new third way, and that is the way of Christ. It is the way of compassion with boundaries. It is the way of love with expectations and responsibilities and consequences. It is the light of Christ that shines through each of us if our hearts 
are not too hard. And if we are willing and vulnerable to to own up to our own conflictedness, we are called to live into a place that is greater than our own basic instincts. And when we appeal to the base, that's what we are appealing to. The point of all this, of course, is for us to flourish, to live in a flourishing world and life so that joy and community and relationship and love and compassion overshadows the baseness in us. I have a theory. It can be substantiated, but my theory is, just looking within myself at least, that we are all racist to the extent that we are estranged from that part of ourselves that feels like a stranger or unwelcome or bad or lost or unlovable. And that in that estrangement of ourselves from that place in us, we simply project that on to someone else so that they will carry it. And we do not have to go into that place. And the sin is that we don't go into that place, that we are slothful, that we're too lazy to go into that place in us, that we are too afraid to go into that place in us. But when we go into that place in us, we will see it. It is there, all of us, that basic fearful instinct. And as Christians, we can at least own that and especially make sure that we do not stamp God on top of it. We do not stamp the presence of Christ on top of that basic instinct on us. I was listening to an interview last Sunday evening, NPR Weekend Edition, and the interviewer was interviewing uh, a man named Ron, Sh- I can't pronounce his name correctly, Shecht, Shecht, who has written a book about three conversions. He has been a radical right-wing evangelical preacher. But before that, until he was converted to Christianity, he was Jewish, And he grew up in a dysfunctional family where there were really no good rules. It was just chaos. And he and his brother, who were twin, who was a twin, converted to Judaism in in high school. And it gave him a sense of structure and it gave him a sense of meaning and something transcendent to give himself over to. And he was converted into an evangelical community. And he grew into that community to become a pastor first conversion over. His second conversion was when he became an ideological right-wing evangelical pastor adamantly against abortion, which led him to do all kinds of terrible things to stop the whole abortion movement from using the fetuses of dead infants at abortion clinics to keep mothers from going in there. And it never occurred to him, you see, that what he was doing in the name of righteousness may in fact be the exact opposite of that, that that he 
his ideology may have, in fact have been only the work of something dark in him. It never occurred to him until he all of a sudden was talking to one of these women face to face and discovered that she was a human being who was scared to death and didn't know what to do and that he was treating her and them like they were nothing more than dirt. And he was convicted in that. And all of a sudden, he began to question his own right-wing, hard, fundamentalist, evangelical faith, even to the point that he wondered what it was all about. And so he got involved in the whole issue of gun rights and gun control. And he began to ask the question, why is the hard right-wing evangelical church so in favor of gun rights? And so he called this meeting of 20 of his close pastor friends, and they sat down and he asked them, he said, how many of you own a weapon? And all 20 raised their hand. Hmm. How many of you carry a weapon on you now? All 20 of them raised their hands. Why? He just was curious. He wanted to understand why. And they tried to explain to him because they needed to defend themselves against a stranger who may come in, but also against the federal government who continues to take away more and more of their rights and that one day they're going to come in and take away everything. They really, he said, deeply have this sense of fear about it, which helps us understand a little bit what it's about. And so we asked them, okay, so you all tote, do you carry it up in the pulpit? And they all said yes. And one guy said, yep, if somebody walks into my church and he's a threat, or somebody stands up in my congregation and they're a threat, I'm going to take him out right from the pulpit. And so Ron asked him, how would you know to shoot first? And there was a lull. And one of the pastors there said, by the color of their skin. I'm preaching to the choir here. I know that. There's one reason I love being associated with Riverside Church. I'm preaching to a church that has a long history of working toward racial reconciliation. Even before Albert Kissling, but especially with Albert Kissling, who was incredibly provocative about pushing toward racial integration way before its time, way before Martin Luther King, to the extent that Riverside lost many members from it. I know I'm preaching to a church who understands this, who gets this, to a church that decided to build a school in 1948, way before Brown versus Board of, Board of Education, way before the independent private school movement as a way to create white flight way before that because Dr. Kistling could see before him into the future that sooner or later it would be deemed unconstitutional to have prayer and religious education in school way before the time. And so he felt like people deserved that if they wanted it. Hence the school was born. And yes, it benefited from white flight. There's no doubt about that, as did all the independent schools 
as did most of the white churches. It benefited from that. But it also has come to understand that if there is not diversity in that school setting, then there is not education. And so they now have a headmaster of diversity. They now have three, maybe four members on the board of diversity, and they continue to strive to bring in as much diversity and persons of color as possible, not because it's the right thing to do, because it is, but because it is for our own benefit. Because that's how we evolve and become more and more like Christ. We open ourselves up to his presence in our lives, and we will be changed. We might even be less fearful and less racist, more open and softer and kinder and more compassionate, and we might even experience that life-giving reconciliation of God with ourselves and each other one people together under God. If we evolve. Amen.